1: This is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I am talking with Dr. Sam Summers about his book, Situations Matter, Understanding How Context Transforms Your World. Dr. Summers is a professor of social psychology at Tufts University. He does research on issues related to stereotyping, prejudice, and group diversity. In the book, Dr. Summers explores how situations and context affect our behavior. He draws on classic social psychology research and uses anecdotes to illustrate his point. The book is readable, funny, and relevant to daily life. Let's get started. Hi, Sam. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Thanks.
0: Thanks for having me. Good. Good. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, well, thank you for being on New Books in Psychology, and thank you for writing such a great, really interesting book. Um, to yeah. To start the interview, why don't we um, just hear a little bit about you? Tell us a little bit about your yourself and your background. Sure.
0: So, uh, so my name is Sam Summers. I am an associate professor of psychology at Tufts University, just outside of Boston. Um, I got my uh, Bachelor of Arts in, in psychology from Williams College in Northwestern Massachusetts. Uh, and then went on to do my graduate work, my graduate study at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, where I got a master's degree and a Ph.D. in psychology. And I have been uh, a faculty member here at Tufts since 2003, so closing in on, on 10 years. And uh, at Tufts, I teach courses on intro psychology and social psychology, um, research methods, upper-level seminar, and some of my specific areas of, of specialization, which include uh, sort of intergroup relations and diversity issues as well as applications of psychology to the legal system. Um, and I guess, uh, in my non academic, non psychology, uh, psychologist time, I am the, uh, married father of, uh, two girls, actually in about an hour and a half going to manage our opening day, uh, third, fourth grade girls softball game. So that's how a lot of my free time gets filled is hanging out with, uh, the various summers ladies. And uh, so, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, great. Well, it sounds sounds like you have some fun plans later today. Should be
0: good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, how did you end up deciding to write a book about context?
0: Well, it's I went to college to be an English major. I didn't know anything about this psychology business. It was not something that one took at my high school, really. um, Or if, if people did, I certainly didn't. And uh, sort of stumbled into introductory psychology course as a freshman, just because it seemed like a thing that first year students did. And I had friends who read it and so forth. And so I really didn't have any expectations. And it was throughout the course of that semester, being in that class, actually participating as a, as a participant in research studies, uh, that I started to have this, I mean, epiphany of sorts of, wow, a lot of the issues that I've always been interested in, a lot of the conversations about sort of the mundane day-to-day aspects of uh, of, of, of daily life um, are questions that not only other people are interested in and other people are asking, but that you can actually ask and try to answer using science. And that was sort of news to me, and it was very exciting to me. And, and so I kept taking courses in psychology and uh, I got involved as a researcher uh, in research projects, a research assistant in the psychology department. And Uh, And and so things really took off from there. And it's always, I I think, one of the the appeals of the field to me, one of the things that's always drawn me to this psychological science perspective is uh, this opportunity to both disabuse people of some of the assumptions and preconceived notions we have about human nature. You know, we all have these expectations about how people work and what makes people tick. and, and, And some of them are well-placed and serve us well, but, but others are really wrong, for lack of a better term, and that's always fascinated me, and, and sort of putting that hand in hand with the idea that, that a lot of what drives and shapes and influences our daily judgment and decision-making and behavior, our factors we're not aware of, um, that, that's really what, what's drawn me to the field and what drew, drew me to writing this book, the idea that the way we think about human nature, The way we uh, sort of think that, well, so-and-so behaves in this way because he or she is that type of person, that only gets us so far. And there's a much more nuanced and much more, uh, a much deeper level of understanding and and, and ability to predict human nature if we stop and appreciate how context, how environmental factors, how the ordinary situations in which we find ourselves really shape who we are and, and how we think and how we act.
1: Well, that actually leads really well into my first content question here, which is why what do you think is really important about understanding the role of context and situational factors um, on on human behavior and our on our lives like why why should people care about this?
0: Uh, I would argue, and I argue in the book that it makes us better at everything, so that, that there's the short answer that we just become more effective people, and I mean more effective at our jobs, more effective interacting with other people in um, a professional level, more effective when it comes to dealing with salespeople or customer service representatives, more effective as parents and spouses and, and siblings and family members. We become more effective at all those different endeavors when we have a deeper understanding and, and a better ability to predict the thoughts and, and actions of people around us. Uh, you know, again, we, we have this this tendency really to to jump to conclusions about a lot of people in our lives and a lot of interactions that we have, and to to have these knee-jerk emotional responses. And again, first impressions and and gut instinct serves us well in in, in a variety of of domains, but it only gets us so far. And if we really want to uh, be better able to predict. What's going to lead certain voters to to respond to certain political candidates, or what's going to lead particular consumers to respond uh, to to a certain type of product, or or how best to structure our interactions with our children in a way to maximize our our children's uh, performance in, in various domains, or or happiness, or or social effectiveness, or what have you. In order to do all those things, you really do need a more nuanced understanding of of that interaction between. Personality and, and, and individual characteristics and the environments in which we find ourselves. So the the real short answer is that, that what I argue in the book is that if we understand this power of situations and just how important context is in shaping human nature, we become much more effective people.
1: Well, I agree. I actually, I'm a clinical psychologist and, you know, throughout the book you talk about sort of taking different points of view and having a flexible view of yourself and other people and I think I mean, just you didn't mention this. So I'll just throw this in there that I think that actually can really help people sort of in their their lives be, like you said, more effective and get a little unstuck from things that might be problematic. So I a few times when I was reading the book, I was thinking about my clinical work and and some some ideas that I can, you know, use with my clients. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, that flexibility thing, I think, is really, really great. So in the first chapter of the book, you write about how we really have a tendency a lot of times to minimize the importance of situations. Like we sometimes assume that we're looking at maybe a character trait or something like that when, when we see other people acting a certain way and we don't really sometimes pay so much attention to, you know, the context. So could you kind of tell us a little bit more about that and why, why we do it?
0: Yeah, we have a tendency to, in many respects, view the people around us in our daily lives the way we do sitcom characters. Uh, this idea that they are fairly predictable individuals who will behave uh, the, the the same way across different contexts. I mean, I, there's some irony to the idea that we call them situation comedies when, in reality, they're really shows about personalities, right? And you know the characters' personalities they can, and predict how they're going to respond, you know, whether they are waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant or on a Hawaiian vacation or whatever the show is that you're particularly fond of. And and we do a lot of that with people in our day-to-day lives as well. Um, you know, we, we sort of get used to seeing them, first of all, in certain situations. Um, I, I was actually just having a conversation with my uh, one of my daughters this morning where she mentioned having run into her teacher over the weekend, you know, at Panera at, the, at a restaurant and seeing her drive. It, and how it seems so weird was her word my nine-year-old daughter's work, weird to see my teacher in a car and eating at a restaurant and wearing jeans. Um, and I, I have that interaction, actually, with my students regularly. They ask me questions like, you know, is it strange for you to go out and, and to, to, to see your students, to see us at a bar, at a restaurant? And, and I say, no, I mean, I know that I continue to exist outside of this classroom. You're the one who thinks that my existence is this two seventy-five 75-minute blocks a week wearing khakis and a collared shirt and using powerpoint I mean that that's in your mind the extent of my universe of existence i know that i exist otherwise and so it's not <laughs> weird for me i think we do that i think i know i think we're surprised when we see our very competent and intelligent physician unable to parallel park or read a map or do something silly that people do uh, in, in various contexts and so uh, you know we we fall victim to this thought process that, that that you know what we see around us the behaviors we see from our fellow motorists, from our colleagues at work, from our neighbors um from from you know individuals who we have one time interactions with, we tend to jump to this idea that well, you know he's behaving in a rude manner because he's a rude person, and uh, you know th- this person's not responding to my request because they're inconsiderate and uh, and so on and and it's often a much more nuanced explanation, understanding uh, or a much more nuanced situation than that. Um, you know why do we do this? Why do we jump to the internal, dispositional, sort of personality-based explanation for other people's behavior, uh, because it's appealingly simple. It's just really appealingly straightforward. It's a complicated and and often unpredictably threatening world around us, and this notion that, well, I can at least stake a a claim on knowing how the people around me are going to act because I've seen them in other contexts and and I've seen them in other situations, that's reassuring to us, and then we find ourselves perpetually shocked to find out that the, the, the guy next door is capable of far better or far worse things than we ever dreamed. And, um, and so, but it, I think it imposes a sense of order onto an otherwise unpredictable social universe to be able to, to think that, well, I have a good handle on what this person's capable of and what kind of person this is. And, and again, there's, there's really an appealing straightforwardness of that kind of thought process
1: hmm Sort of a shortcut, but one that's not always correct. Yeah, and it
0: might serve you well yeah. enough in that, you know, you have an interaction, you're watching, you're at the, the airport and they've lost your bags or they've delayed your flight and there's three lines all leading to the same customer service desk and you, and you see that one of the representatives behind the desk seems more curt and less friendly than the others and, and maybe the knee-jerk reaction you have to think, well, he doesn't seem like a friendly person. I'm going to go to one of the other lines. That might serve you. Maybe you're right in that in that particular instance. Maybe, you know, in the short term, that serves you well in choosing which line to go to. Um, but as a life strategy as a whole, um, it leads us astray in, in, in many different instances. And, and it frankly, it just serves as an obstacle that prevents us from um, doing a really good job, uh, doing as good a job as we could at understanding other people. Uh, you know, is really good at this, for example. I mean, you mentioned clinical psychologists and good clinical psychologists are, I think, good at this. Good public speakers are good at this, being able to adapt and read the audience and adapt what they're doing and how they're doing it based on the responses that they're getting. Salespeople are great at this. Salespeople have a the good salesperson has a tremendous understanding of the power of context and, and how simple tweaks to how you're marketing the product or talking about the product or interacting with the the, the customer can have a dramatic shift in the way that they see the product, the way they react to you. And um, that's the kind of that's the kind of issue that we're talking about here, this sensitivity to how um, the environment you're in and the, and the circumstances going on at that one point in time are incredibly important in figuring out why people act the way they do and how to get them maybe to do what you want them to do.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but the you wrote about someone who has the job of getting a crowd at maybe a sporting event or something like that, getting kind of reading the crowd and getting the crowd all right. wild up at just the right time. I think that's that was a really interesting example. I had no idea that there were people whose job it is to do this. Yeah, Cameron
0: Hughes, <laughs> my friend, the super fan, the professional sports fan, who, who I interview in the book and. And who's a, a very good guy in a very, in a great conversation, um, because that's what his job is, right? His job, he gets paid by professional sports teams, uh, you know, NBA teams, NHL teams. He was at the Olympics in Vancouver a, a year or two ago, uh, the U.S. Open Tennis tournament. He gets paid by these events and by these teams to show up and rile up the crowd. And, and he's basically the crowd whisperer. I mean, his job is to, to, to get people, uh, you know, worked up at the, the energy level of the home arena. Uh, uh, up in, in a variety of different ways, and, and that's what he does. He 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 reads people. He turns the power of social influence and conformity in ways that make it sort of liberates them to act uh, in the ways that an enthusiastic sports crowd might act. And yeah, it's a fascinating profession to have uh, in, in writing book and researching the book I and mean, find out about Cameron. There are, there are people who are professional laughers who who get paid basically to show up to the recordings of television shows. Uh, because their laughs are laughs are so robust and contagious that when people see that show played later on video and can hear that laughter from the audience, they tend to find that show more entertaining and you know, no one no one would tell you the million years of laugh tracks work. everyone tells you they hate them, and you know there's this movement now with the mockumentary uh, model of shows like the office and and otherwise to to not have laugh tracks at all but People tell you they hate that, and yet it still seems to work. People tell you they hate negative campaigning in politics, and yet it still seems to work. And and so the book does really explore a lot of these different ways in which things that we don't think or or, or wouldn't want to admit have an impact on us uh, quite often do.
1: Yeah, it's funny because it makes me feel these examples, the crowd and the laughing, the people who are paid to, to laugh, makes me feel like, wow, I didn't know other people could sort of this directly, I, I don't know, almost manipulate my emotional state. I mean, manipulate might be a strong word for yeah, it. I think but a lot of
0: people feel that. I think a lot of people f- find it to be somewhat of an uncomfortable set of conclusions, mm-hmm. um, because we do have this, especially in uh, quote-unquote Western society, especially in the United States and our history of, sort of rugged individualism and so forth. We really do have this idea, uh, this notion of the self as being independent and of making up our own minds for ourselves and not being not being sheep's, sheep led by the other sheep. Um, and I'm not suggesting, the book and the research is not suggesting that we're sheep either, but it, so it can be disconcerting, I think, at times for people to discover the extent to which people around us really change mm-hmm. how we think and act. I mean, I guess I would argue at some level it's it's a liberating conclusion when you realize it, that that first of all, only by understanding and, and accepting that this really is what influences us and this really these really are the factors that shape our tendencies, that's required in order to to try to resist that if that's something that we do want to Mm -hmm. resist, But it also, you know, frankly, opens the door to uh, being more effective in a lot of different walks of life, raising money for the nonprofit that you work for, or, um, you know, trying to uh, signal the need for and attract help in an emergency situation and so forth. So I think it's, it's actually somewhat empowering as well to realize that this is how
1: things work. Yeah, absolutely. Having an awareness of this is seems like the, the where kind of what you want to start from, no matter what your, your goal is. Um, so you had mentioned trying to get help. Um, could you talk a little bit about how context affects um, altruistic behaviors and these sort of helpful, helping other people situations?
0: Yeah, the book, the book runs the range of the, the human continuum, as it were. So there are chapters and sections of chapters in the book um, that talk about some of the great things that humanity is capable of and, and heroism, and, uh, and there's a whole chapter on falling in love. Um, but the book also talks about some of the darker, I guess, if you want to call it, chapters of, of human uh, existence and talks about, um, you know, the prejudice in your conflict and talks about our, our tendency in some instances to be apathetic to the, the plight of those around us. And uh, and one of the so one of the chapters in the book really focuses on this, this power of crowds and how we're different when we're in a crowd than we are by ourselves. And um, that can be sort of us behaving in different ways, getting riled up like the Cameron Hughes, the super fan and doing the wave and things we wouldn't do otherwise. But it can also be the other direction that a crowd pushing us towards inaction and towards tunnel vision and focus on our own needs instead of the needs of others. And so we talk, I talk about in the book, some of these, some of them famous, some of them maybe instances people haven't read about before, but instances where you have an uh, individual in need of assistance, in need of help, um, who who doesn't get that help. So whether it's the, the patient who collapses in, in an emergency room and, and no one comes to her assistance for 60, 90 minutes or the, the, the tourist who's visiting New York and passes out on the subway and rides around for three or four hours before any real, anyone realizes or that anything's wrong or intervenes in the situation um, and so forth. And when we hear about those stories and we hear about them a lot, I mean, it's it's every couple of weeks, there's a new story you read about it, hear about um, where something like that happens. Our knee-jerk reaction is to indict those in individuals at the scene as being somehow chronically indifferent and callous, as being unusually uh, apathetic individuals. To think, yeah, gosh, that would never happen, Riley, I would never behave that way. What's wrong with these people? Um, and I'm not suggesting that that kind of apathetic behavior doesn't merit blame or or, or sanction or social disapproval. I think that, that it does in many instances. But it's it's just really easy to to hang, again, your hat on this idea that something's something wrong with those people. Um, I think that's a cop-out, actually. I think it makes us feel better because it does let us say, well, that would never happen to me. I would never do that. Because in reality, mm-hmm. what we know from the science is that there are uh, a number of, of aspects of the situations in which we find ourselves that make all of us, you and me included, less likely to get involved in the affairs of, of others. And one of the big ones is having other people around just being in a crowd for a variety of reasons. Um, makes us less likely to to get involved in the affairs of others and to to intervene in a situation, whether it's an emergency or, or otherwise.
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioned in the book. So yeah, I think it's really interesting those factors that you you kind of put out there there in the book to just to know those. Um, it will, I think, you you mentioned in the book that it helps. People who know about that effect actually start helping more and sort of acting more altruistically. And you mentioned a few of your former students who had contacted you to tell stories. And I actually have one myself that when I was, you know, I'm I also have a. A degree in psychology and when I first learned about this research I was walking across the campus one day and someone fell on her bike and it it seems sort of embarrassing when something like that happens for the person and everybody else kind of looked away and kept walking and I just walked right over to her and I said are you okay you know I just mostly was just kind of nice to her about it and she was so appreciative because she was shaken up you know a little in shock and everybody else just kept walking and I don't think I would have done that normally I mean, I probably would have done what everybody else did, but she was so grateful, and that it really struck me, you know, that you can actually do something to help in these kind of situations. It's just that so often we we don't.
0: Yeah, I do a, I do a demonstration in class, and it's obviously on, on a different scale, and it's not an emergency by any means, but but one of a variety of demonstrations. One of them is sort of getting ready for class at the beginning of the lecture, where we're going to talk about this kind of situation. So, you know, on the screen, in big letters, it says, Helping Behavior, Part 1, or the topic of the day, and... And as we're getting ready for the lecture, I intentionally drop you know, hundreds of pieces of paper on the floor, seemingly my notes that have now gone all over the place, and scatter in front of the big lecture and so forth. And time after time, reliably, students just sit there in the lecture hall and watch me sort of get down on all fours embarrassingly and pick them up. And they sit there and they watch, and and they sometimes chuckle, and I think they probably at this point – Take pictures and tweet them and put them on Instagram and things like that, and um, they don't help. And and they're not bad people. They're not sociopaths, which is the tendency, it's a conclusion that you some might have in watching them. I mean, if they were in my office at office hours and the same thing happened, they would get up and they would help me pick them all up because they frankly feel terrible and look like a jerk if they didn't. But in that crowd, for a variety of reasons, we don't do that. We feel you feel anonymous in the crowd, right? You feel like you can just sit there and no one's going to know whether you intervene or not. Um, you, you don't frankly always know, uh, what's going on in, in a situation like this. And you look to the people around you to see what their reaction is. And so when you look around the subway car and, and, and that you just got on and, and no one seems concerned that this guy who seems to be slumped over, you figure, well, they know something that I don't know. You know, they've been on the subway longer than I have. Maybe he just announced that he's going to take a nap or Maybe he's on this car every day and he looks like that. And so I guess it's not an emergency. Um, And then, of course, there's the, the old tried and true diffusion of responsibility. This is just the idea that, well, I see what's going on and I know that guy needs help, but why does it have to be me? Someone else can take care of this. It's the yeah you know, the very same mentality that leads us to sit there with the movie that goes out of focus at the at the theater and not do anything because you assume and hope someone else is going to go tell the projectionist, and so everyone just sits there and it never gets fixed and and that plays itself out in emergencies as well. And so knowing those things, understanding that there are obstacles to our you know involvement and intervention in these kinds of situations, obstacles that include just assuming other people will take care of it or using other people around us as a source of information. when you're aware of that, it becomes hard to sit there and not do anything the next time around because at the very least you're equipped with the knowledge of what, what it is that's really happening.
1: Mm-hmm. You can no longer sort of just feel like you're not responsible because now, now that you know this, you know that you are.
0: Yeah, and you may um, still come to the conclusion that this is not a good time or place or I don't have the skill set mm-hmm. to intervene, but, but you're making a more conscious decision, a more aware decision often.
1: So, I'm wondering now that your book is out um you know if any of your students happen to read it before taking your class, I wonder if you'll get some help with those papers it's true i have
0: it is true that one of the perils of 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 writing a book like this is that a lot of your your tried and true uh tricks go by the wayside ah, you know huh. frankly, you know you can't even tell the same jokes, You're like I think I read that already You're like, yeah, I guess you did.
1: <laughs> well, now you can at least tell which of your students have That's read true. your book and maybe give them a little extra That's credit true. or something. Absolutely. <laughs> So I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that context shapes our perceptions of ourself or sort of our our views of ourself.
0: Yeah, our self-view, our self-concept is also something that is, I think, to many people, surprisingly context dependent. I think there there is a, a notion that some of us have. There's a notion that's sometimes you know, supported and and uh, endorsed by sort of the gurus of self-help who write books and best-selling books and have TV shows. There's this notion that, you know, within us lurks this core or true self and we need to find that person. Um, and, you know, we do have, it is true, people vary in their personality tendencies and so forth. But we also, turns out, to the research tells us that people are surprisingly flexible and uh, surprisingly context-dependent. Uh, there's a Uh, sort of a famous, uh, well-known assessment of the self-concept that's referred to as the 20-statements test, and it's named very descriptively. It's a very (laughs) appropriate name. It's just 20 statements that say, I am blank, written out uh, 20 times on a piece of paper, and you fill it in with the first words that come to mind. And people's responses to those kinds of, to that measure, to those statements, they're remarkably variable, depending on what mood they're in, um, who they're sitting with, who's asking the questions. Um, certainly what stage of life you're in, you know, you answer that differently 10 years ago than you do now than you will in 10 years. But, but even more mundane factors like, uh, you know, what mood you're in and whether your favorite sports team just won or whether you're sitting in a room full of other college students or in a room full of adults or Americans or non-Americans and so forth. And, and we are, you know, there's always an infinite number of responses you can give to a statement like that, to the I am blank statement and, and who you're with and who's asking and what you're thinking about, those all dramatically shape the responses that we give to those questions, and and they, you know, the context in which we find ourselves change our views of who we are and and our and our own uh, sense of self worth and self concept.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to me it seems like this is where that idea of having more flexibility is really useful to to be able to look at yourself in a more flexible way, really. I, I don't know. I could see how it could help you be more effective. You know, if you're saying, I'm a person who does this, if you latch on to that too strongly, might might uh, lose some flexibility in your life.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's this idea of mindset. So Carol Dweck, and, uh, who's at Stanford, a psychologist at Stanford, and her colleagues and other psychologists have, have, have studied this idea that um, your mindset and how it is that you view yourself and your skill set and uh, your, your tendencies – has a dramatic impact on on your life outcomes. And so uh, you know, for example, they find in research studies that that individuals or just take students, kids, kids who have a a view of something like intelligence as being this fixed aptitude. you know you, you have it or you don't. You're, you're you're I'm good at math or I'm not good at math or I'm just not a good test taker or I am a good test taker. That kind of view of of an aptitude like of intelligence as being this fixed trait. Um, well, it might serve you okay if you're doing well, but eventually, all of us encounter setbacks and obstacles and frustrations in our academic and intellectual work and or our professional uh, endeavors. and And when you have that view of yourself in, in very fixed terms, well, those setbacks are incredibly threatening, and so it leads to all sorts of need for self deception and 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 distorting the feedback that you're getting and, and and withdrawing from certain domains because you can't take that kind of constructive or negative feedback. Um, when you When you view something like intelligence as flexible as as fluid as as being like a muscle that strengthens with trial and error and with repeated use, people become more persistent they become uh, better able to to handle setback and they become more resilient and, and ultimately more successful and so uh, this idea of, of how we view ourselves it's not just a It's not just a sort of a a mental question of, well, you know, what's going on in our head and what are we carrying around with us mentally. It translates to very real world outcomes that the the view of the self as being flexible, of our skill sets as being more malleable, really serves us well in the long run.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, and certainly one area where this sort of plays out is um, gender and socialization and beliefs that we form about gender. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, situations and context, the role that they play in, in gender differences.
0: I think that sex differences, gender differences is perhaps one of, if not the best example of our tendency to jump to internal explanations for the, the, the tendencies that we observe in life. So, you know, you read about on your lunch break, you're on CNN.com or you're on Facebook and you see someone post an article, the latest one about study shows men better at parking than women, women better parking than men, whatever the study is that has to do with with sex differences in, in a particular domain. When we hear about that, when we hear about those studies, when we talk more colloquially about differences between men and women, we really gravitate to that that biological or physiological or evolutionarily based explanation, the whole... You know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus idea. Um, It's again, it's an appealing, straightforward one. There are obviously clear biological, anatomical, physiological differences between boys and girls, between men and women. And so it's a very salient distinction. And we, we we easily come to those conclusions. And again, I'm not arguing by any means that there are not biological differences between the sexes. But but we tend to exaggerate those biological and evolutionary explanations as causes for Social and cognitive differences that we observe. Um, you know, one of the, the the famous examples is just performance in math and, and math and science aptitude. And and there is a pretty pervasive stereotype in our society that math is, you know, more of a quote unquote boys thing than it is for, for girls. Um, you hear this. You hear kids talking about this. You hear. Uh, adults, uh, you know, talking about in different terms about how they feel about math and so forth. And indeed, in studies where you give high-achieving college students a standardized math exam, your average male student will outperform your average female student, even if you control for their previous SAT performance and math training and so forth. So men will tend to outperform women on a standardized math test. But in these studies, give them the exact same math test, and tell them, I'm going to give you a math test, this is a math test that has been validated previously and found to produce no gender difference whatsoever. Suddenly, on that very same math test, the difference goes away. The men and the women perform just as well as one another, suggesting that it's not biology, it's not some evolutionary explanation for men having to think more scientifically because they were out gathering food and women were not uh, You know, many, many generations ago. But it, there's a huge social component to this, this belief that, this is not a thing that people like me are supposed to be good at, or this is a test that someone's giving me and maybe they don't expect I'm going to do very well on that. And just this idea, this awareness of the, the stereotypes out in the world, in the, in the ether, is enough to be distracting and agitating sufficiently to, to let women do, to, to, to make women perform a little bit worse on that test. And so if you, you remove that from the equation, you give the test and say, no, no reason to be worried about any pre existing gender biases in this test, telling the men and women perform equally well. And so the the chapter on on sex differences in the book really goes through a lot of these tried and true in our minds, gender differences like math differences and differences in spatial reasoning and navigation uh, and even aggression, sort of the granddaddy of all sex differences and and shows how they are surprisingly context dependent and not nearly as immutable and, and fixed as we tend to think they are. Mm
1: hmm. So, even something like the instructions on the math test, something that is the context in with in which the test is given, those beliefs are internalized and actually you know impact our performance or how we act, yeah, they can we kind of pull those in and even and even if they're not internalized,
0: even if you have mm-hmm. female test takers who don't endorse those beliefs and who, and who resist those beliefs, simply knowing that the people around you or the people giving you the test or scoring the test might hold those beliefs is. A distraction. It's, it's an additional cognitive burden that the men don't have. And when you're taking a hard math test and need all your mental resources marshaled towards the task at hand, it, it, it's a handicap. It, it, it inevitably siphons off some of the energy and attention that you need to do well.
1: So, what can parents do um, in terms of how they talk to their kids and, and the socialization that they provide for their kids in terms of gender roles?
0: I think that when you hear your kid, be a boy. Be be a boy. Be she a girl. Come home from school and tell you something like, um, you know, just in casual conversation. Well, you know, that's something The that boys aren't very good at, or that's something The that girls aren't good at, um, or that's a girl thing or a boy thing. I think having a conversation about that's really important, uh, and not just sort of nodding, which or or even not responding, which is an implicit reinforcement of that of that sort of mentality. I think that um, you know we we know from research that. Minutes after birth, parents are already using different words to describe their sons versus their daughters. They're, you know, describing their sons in terms that include, you know, strong and alert, and and they're not. They're more likely to talk about cute and and, and you know, soft and precious with their daughters. Um, and so those kinds of messages start to be uh, conveyed at a pretty at a pretty young age. And, and so just being aware of that and having conversations and and even just giving some conscious attention to that um that fact i think is really important i I remember having a conversation with one of my daughters when she was four or five and we were picking out her very first bike at the store and the one she liked was blue and of course it was in the the boy's bike section um and that was causing her some distress or some she couldn't figure it out it was agitating why is it the boy's section can i not ride this bike and you almost want to say no honey it's it's fine. It's not. It's not somehow ergonomically designed so that it's only going to work if you have testicles. It's going to be okay. You can ride this one. Um, and and so just even the really mundane things like the way the toy stores label their aisles or uh, the the messages you get from TV shows or the fact that when you go through a fast food drive through they ask you boy or girl for the Happy Meal because they want to know the right prize to give you. Um, that just being aware of those kinds of things and the messages that our kids are exposed to, I think, is an important first step.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think actually that chapter was great with some of the, the advice that you had. It was, I have a young kid myself, so it was a good reminder <laughs> to some helpful tips there. Well, it's actually, so even the really
0: innocuous things, and, and I've gotten some pushback on pe- from people on this, but, um, so if you think back, I think back to my own days in elementary school and teachers saying things like, you know, good morning, boys and girls, and, you know, let's have the boys line up on that side and the girls line up on that side. Really innocuous stuff. The research suggests, mm-hmm. so Rebecca Bigler is at University of Texas in the psychology department and, and others, done research that suggests that that actually can be a problematic turn of phrase, that, that emphasizing that distinction when it doesn't make any difference whatsoever can sort of, you know, reinforce the the preconceived notions that these kids have about the important social and cognitive differences between boys and girls. Um, and again, I've had people say well, that's ridiculous and what's wrong with saying boys and girls and, you know, it's time for you to quiet down boys and girls. But why is it necessary to say that as opposed to, OK, children, let's all come together. Clearly, we wouldn't be OK with the teacher saying something like, OK, you know, I'd like all the all the white children over on that side of the room and all the darker children on that side of the room or saying, Okay. Good morning, children who have two parents and children who have one parent. We we would never do that. Mm -hmm. And and again, I know people are going to recoil and say, "Well, this sounds just like overly sensitive political correctness." But what I'm suggesting is that the research indicates that it's reinforcing some preconceived notions in problematic ways.
1: Right. It sort of emphasizes the differences between boys and girls versus the, you know, range of how people can be. Yeah, it's a turn of phrase yeah. that it,
0: it conveys no information and, and doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you mentioned earlier, you kind of just briefly mentioned that um, context and situations impact romantic attraction. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yes. Um,
1: I, I thought this was so interesting. Uh,
0: it is It, it is something that I... So another exercise I've done with various groups I've spoken to or with students is sort of ask them to... Know, what are the what are the three factors that uh, are most important in, in shaping who you're attracted to? And they can answer that question in terms of romantic and sexual attraction. Or they can do it more in terms of friends and platonic attraction. I don't really specify. But what you find when you ask people that question is their responses inevitably um, fall into two major categories. You get about half of the responses are uh, about personality characteristics like intelligence or sense of humor or sensitivity and what have you. And the other half of the responses are physical characteristics, um, you know, certain hair color, certain appearance characteristics. I mean, I, I do this anonymously with college students in, in a big class. So you get things written down on that piece of paper that are, frankly, unspeakable in, in public. Um, but, yeah, you know, they're very specific about physical characteristics, about personality characteristics. That's how we think about attraction. And I'm not here to tell you that those things don't matter. They obviously matter a huge amount. Um, but the research, again, the science tells us that there are all these mundane contextual factors that play a dramatic role in who we find ourselves attracted to and, and, and with whom we wind up in life, um, that we just don't give any thought to. things, Simple things like sheer physical proximity and, and who it is that we encounter on a regular basis and, uh, and frankly, similarity in terms of experience and background and and so forth. And, and even for that matter, the, the specific physical environment in which we encounter someone. So there's... Research that suggests that if you interact with someone in a physiologically arousing environment, you are more, you feel more attracted to them than if you interact with them in, in an environment in which you're not physiologically aroused. And so, you know, just think about the idea, the difference between having a conversation with someone right after you step off the elliptical at the gym versus the conversation you might have with someone in the parking lot before you even got into the gym. We think of arousal as being this 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 symptom of attraction and that we meet someone that we're attracted to whom we're attracted our our heart races and and our, our you know our pulse quickens and our our palms get sweaty. That that happens, but but arousal is actually also sometimes a cause of attraction and you know, our heart's racing and our palms are sweaty, we start to look around and figure out what's going on and why is it that all of a sudden you realize you're talking to this person and hey, that person's pretty attractive. And so some of our assumptions and intuitions about about love about about attraction physical attraction sexual attraction or even our most intimate of of thoughts are uh, again in, in many respects surprisingly shaped by context
1: mhm mhm yeah that i thought the physical proximity thing was really funny you know if you want to date with someone, just kind of hang around them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's probably about the best thing you can do to up your
0: yeah, odds. You can do this poorly, of course.
1: That's um, true. <laughs> you know, there are these
0: studies where in, in say, a, a large lecture course where you don't necessarily have all that much interaction with everyone around you. Um, in, in one study, a professor arranged for um, three different women to be sitting in the lecture hall for different periods of time throughout the course of the semester. And so one woman not taking the class, Um, not even interacting with anyone, but just sat in the lecture hall, took notes like everyone else, I think, over the course of five days for the semester. And another woman sat in the room 10 different times, and yet another woman 15 different times. And the more often one of these women was present in the classroom, at the end of the semester when the professor showed them a series of photographs and just asked the students to rate the attractiveness of supposedly strangers they'd never interacted with before, the more times a woman had appeared in the classroom and sat there not interacting with them, but just had been there, the more attractive the, the students felt that individual was. Yeah. Something just about seeing, and, and not even having it on your conscious radar screen, but crossing paths with something or someone makes us more, for the most part, as a rule. You know, all of the, everything else, um, you know, all other things controlled for tends to make us more attracted to it. It's, I mean, it's the reason why uh, advertising works and commercial jingles get in our head, and and we have fond memories of certain scents and odors and the sounds of the you know, radio broadcasters from the town in which we grew up, and we heard them so many times, they became familiar, and familiarity doesn't really breed contempt. It tends to breed attraction for the most part. And so um, proximity plays a huge role that we don't always think about.
1: But it's one of the overlooked things that, that uh, doesn't really get talked about much. Yeah, I think it's another so, idea
0: that that, that people sometimes bristle at Uh, like my wife I talk with the book hates that chapter um or or hates that perspective on um on attraction at some level uh, because she feels it's not romantic it's not it's not consistent with this idea of of soulmates that of compatibility of personalities and and all that I'm not suggesting that that doesn't play a role but what I'm suggesting is at some level in my mind it's actually sort of, again, a liberating set of conclusions that it's not all about finding that one Mr. or Mrs. Right that if you don't locate, you're never going to be happy because that's pretty daunting. In the world in which we live in, the idea that our attraction to other people and our relationships with them, that we're remarkably flexible in who we can form those close bonds with, I actually think that's a, a reassuring comforting thought.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We should make a more uh, realistic uh, romantic comedy film, and give us all a little hope right. <laughs> um, so you also write in the book you know about some of these darker sides of of the role of context, including you have a whole chapter on hate and uh stereotyping and that type of thing um I was wondering actually, I thought these the studies that you did about um, efforts that people make to appear colorblind or to sort of avoid talking about race. I thought that was really fascinating. I was wondering if you could could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. The the main moral of that chapter is that, um, again, we we too often get caught up in this very personality-based, personality-driven view of of bias, of of discrimination, of, of racism or sexism or any kind of ism, right? It's why we, anytime there's a uh, a, a racially fraught controversy or, or debate um, or incident in, in the public, the discourse doesn't really get past the, well, it's such and such a racist level of discussion, and that's the conversation we always have, and it never goes anywhere, because no one ever thinks that they're a racist, and, and, and it becomes a very loaded term, and, and, you know, again, difficult and somewhat futile conversation. Um it turns out again that there are circumstances and and general cognitive tendencies that make all of us susceptible to stereotypical thoughts and um, and even prejudicial inclinations and that's really what the chapter focuses on. Um, as you mentioned, this is something I do some research on and uh, in this day and age, what you see a lot of people in this country in America certainly doing when it comes to questions of race and in particular, what you see a lot of white Americans do when it comes to race is to uh, make an effort to to suggest that they don't even notice to begin with. there's this idea of almost you know strategic color blindness of, of claiming the the well, I don't even see color, so you know certainly I can't be biased kind of mentality. It's you know played up to a ridiculous extreme by Stephen Colbert for anyone who watches his mm-hmm. show where he
1: I was just thinking about that. someone it
0: starts with uh <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're an African-American male? Because I don't even notice these things. Are you a black man? And yes, I'm a black man. They'll have the conversation from there. It's only a slight exaggeration, really. And so we've done some studies looking at that, looking at the at people's tendency to go out of their way to to claim and to assert that they are not noticing race in interactions. And what we find in a lot of those studies is that ironically, you know, for people who are doing this because they're hoping to avoid conflict and avoid making a bad impression, when we do that in our conversations, we tend to come off as disingenuous, and we tend to come off as distracted. Even from a nonverbal perspective, we make poorer eye contact and just aren't viewed as being as warm a person as we are when we are much more forthright and upfront in our in our conversations. And so, um, I, you know, the issue of of race, of bias, of um, uh, of intergroup conflict is is a obviously a fraught with controversy and, and polarized opinions. And we try to, What I try to do in the book is, is subject it to some of the same level of analysis as everything else in, in the book from, you know, to, to take a look at it and to, to show how it's not all just about good people, bad people. Um, it's about sort of all people and the tendencies that push us in different directions. And then knowing that, what we can do to try to strategize, to combat some of the tendencies we might not be quite as happy about.
1: Mhm yeah i mean it, to me it seems important that if people can get this more nuanced view of it that it could it, you know as you recommend in the book sort of open people up to talk a little bit more at a deeper level about things like racism and race and um but the first step is to kind of acknowledge some of these things instead of avoiding uh, talking about it yeah. out of fear of of being considered, you know, quote, a uh, racist right. or whatever. <laughs> Here's
0: what we know from these studies of interracial interaction. When when people go into an interaction with someone of a, a different racial or ethnic background and their mindset, their mentality is one of prevention. Um, don't do the wrong thing. Don't say something stupid. Don't say something offensive. Um, you know, minimize, cut your losses and minimize bad outcomes. That not surprisingly, doesn't go very well. It's it's a a terrible way to go through social interactions, worrying about what not to do, what not to say, and what to avoid. When people go into interracial interactions with more of a promotion mentality of, hey, it's important. I want this person to like me. I want them to think I'm taking their viewpoint seriously. I'm going to listen. I'm going to make good eye contact, smile, nod, listen to what they have to say. This seems Mm -hmm. overly simplistic, but it's not what we do. And when we do it that way, not not just interracial conversations; all conversations tend to go better. But we do tend to adopt this prevention mentality and sort of put up the the, the force field. And in those kinds of environments, it doesn't serve us well. hmm
1: mm-hmm. So we have a few minutes left, but I want to kind of um, just take a look at the whole you know body of work here that you're looking at, and, and just thinking. You know, we've talked about some different advice in some areas like gender, um, but if you just taking the whole book, uh, what what do you think would be most helpful to someone? Just a little advice you might have to someone who wants to apply some of this in their in his or her life.
0: Uh, I, I give you two two little tidbits of advice that I think reflect sort of the general spirit and theme of the book. One of them is, and it's going to sound sort of like a, a corny Mister Rogers conclusion, but to force force yourself literally force yourself to to you know see the situation from someone else's standpoint. We don't. Do that nearly enough, um, so you're having the argument with the customer service representative, or you're you're cut off in traffic, or you're negotiating with someone in business. It's it's very easy and we very quickly uh, to jump to conclusions about who we're dealing with and have an emotional response. And we do a whole lot better when we force ourselves to think about things from the other perspective. So, you know, if you're a teacher. Sit out there in the classroom and, and be a member of the audience for, for lectures once in a while. Other people give. And it reminds you of the things that work well and the things that don't work well in a lecture hall. And, uh, and my, my father in law is actually a physician and, and I quote him in the book because he always gives the example when he's talking to medical students about one of the best things that can happen to you as a medical student is to to get sick. I mean nothing serious, but enough to remind you of what it's like to Wait on hold to make an appointment and deal with the insurance folks and sit in the waiting room and just all the and have that conversation with the physician that is so dependent on bedside manner and just that reminder that refresher course we don't get enough of that because we become so consumed by the routine in which we find ourselves that that we lose sight of how you know this interaction we're having on a regular basis is very different for somebody else and so I think that serves us really well uh, to be able to do that. Um, Another piece of advice I'd like to give based on the book is one, you know, we we're talking about parenting and talking about kids. And so uh, I think it's a very easily translatable and, and easily implemented piece of advice is to think about the kinds of the language that you use when you're praising your children. Um, we I think it, you gravitate really quickly and easily as a parent to saying, um, you know, your kid shows you the picture that he or she made to say, oh, that's great. You're such a great artist. Or they show you the spelling test. They did a good job. About, oh, you're so smart. Great job. Um, And that's a lovely thing to say to your child in the abstract. But it also conveys a certain message. It's a very disposition-based, personality-based, intrinsic message that you are good at this, you have the aptitude for this. And um, what will happen inevitably in your child's life, as it happens in everybody's life, is that they will encounter, again, frustrations and, and setbacks. And if they have come to view their own accomplishments through that lens of what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, that's going to be really frustrating and tough for them to wrap their minds and their psyches around. And so we're much better off saying things like, you know, I, I'm so proud of you on that spelling test. I know you worked really hard and praising their effort on it um, or, you know, that that picture is great. Uh, you tell me a little bit more about it. it, it you know, I, I love the way that you, you know, use so many different colors and, and really spent your time trying to take what it was that you had in mind and put it on the paper. Praising effort in the process is something that doesn't come as naturally and 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 seems maybe more. Uh, long-winded, but it really is a, is a good message that serves our kids well in the long run, and frankly, the same thing for internal dialogue, serves us well as adults in the long run, too. Mm,
1: great. Well, thank you. Um, so what are you working on these days? What do you have ahead in your career? Well, I've got the
0: day job, which keeps me busy teaching and, <laughs> and, and doing academic research and and publishing along those lines. Um, pretty soon, I'm actually going to start some work on a uh, academic textbook, and collaborating with some colleagues on on a, on a social psychology textbook. So that's going to be fun. And then, you know, in the in the not too distant future, the idea of maybe putting together another uh, another book, sort of uh, you know, behavioral science for a general audience kind of book, the way that that I did with this first one, when situations matter. That's certainly something on the radar screen that I you know would enjoy doing. It was fun to do the first time, and it would be fun to do again.
1: Wonderful. Well, good luck luck with that. And we'll look forward to your next book. And I do recommend everybody listening to the interview that if you have a chance to, to read this book, there's some really, really interesting uh, ideas in here. And Sam, thank you again so much for being on New Books of Psychology. It was a pleasure talking with
0: you. Thanks for having me, Debbie.
1: This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Sam Summers, author of the book, Situations Matter, Understanding How Context Transforms Your World. Thank you for listening to new books in psychology.